All right, welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. Arrgh, crypto! You like my fury? Oh, is that your fury? <laughs> <laughs> I heard some sound. I didn't know it was fury. Yeah, that's fury. <laughs> like Mr. Furious. Today, we are going to go heavy into detail on The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner, Chapter 1. This is our in-depth series where we're really going to break down what actually happened in Chapter 1, because not everyone agrees on exactly what happened. I'm going to read a quote from Andre Blekestein, who recommends that Benji be an epilogue more so than Faulkner's recommendation as a prologue. And as a guy who has gone through this several times, I can completely understand. And it's all about how these connected meanings interlace, and that only gets really pulled out through future chapters. Yeah, I had to read it twice and then go over your notes before I was able to start pulling out some information. I would say the story is as muddied as Caddy's drawers at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I got that joke. So let's talk about the narrator, and if you haven't, please make sure you start with our Before You Read, The Sound and the Fury, because we're going to give a lot more context and some of the background behind this book. We're really just going to be focusing on chapter one in this video. So chapter one is narrated by Benjamin Compson, a.k.a. Maury Compson, for those that were confused. He was born Maury in 1895, but in 1900, when he was five, they changed his name to Benji. So this is also a device to show chime changing throughout, and it's very, very subtle and sometimes hard to pick up, but they would use his different names, Benji and Maury, to denote the different times that he's talking about or remembering in his life. Now, the narration style with Benji is very unique. And the fact that Mr. Faulkner calls him an idiot has a very specific meaning. See our before video where we'll read the Macbeth reference. But I have a quote from his letter to Gene Stein where he says, I had already begun to tell it through the eyes of the idiot child since I felt that it would be more effective told by someone capable only of knowing what happened but not why? So the story starts off on Benji's 33rd birthday, but this actually doesn't mean anything to him whatsoever, and that kind of comes to play throughout you reading the first chapter. Time is something that he's just going to play with through the whole book, but Benji is the most difficult. Yeah, I know that I was able to finally enjoy it the second time through after reading it once, looking at your notes, and then reading it a second time and realizing that Benji is experiencing everything through sensations. And that was one of the key aspects, I think, of understanding and enjoying the first chapter. Would you say the story is sensational? <laughs> Let's start with the opening line. Through the fence between the curling flower spaces... I could see them hitting. They were coming toward where the flag was, and I went along the fence. Luster was hunting in the grass by the flower tree. They took the flag out, and they were hitting. Then they put the flag back, and they went to the table. And he hit, and the other hit. Now, if you hadn't read through this first chapter, that first paragraph is like, what's going on? Are they fighting? What's this? What do you mean they put it on a table? What's this flag thing? It's completely without context, right? Are they playing tag? Is this baseball? It, what? It, what? Are they having a picnic? You you would be very lost. And even the word caddy, why why does he pay attention or moan when they yell the word caddy? Yeah, that was definitely something that you have to not only have context, but I think that through the whole chapter, you finally start picking up on why that is so important to Benji. We'll get this. Here is the April 7th, 1928 manuscript opening line. Okay. Benji Compson, tended by TP, a year younger than himself and a member of the Gibson family employed by the Compsons, watches the golfers playing on what had once been the pasture 
he loved. Yeah, so it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> you get the context. You get that this was a pasture that he loves. You yeah. get that there's golfers happening there. You even get the the families, that there's this Gibson family that's being paid by the Compsons. So you immediately know the Compsons are more upper class compared to before. He gave you so much more context. What is the what, but not the why or the connections behind it? I'm going to tell you point A. I'm going to tell you point B. But I'm not going to tell you how we got from point A to point B. And I believe this is genius. And I think this is what makes Faulkner such a literary giant and great, uh, one of the best of all time, is because if you look at that, it is how a child would describe golfing and not understanding what was going on. And there's some masterclass level symbolism here where Benji is completely restricted. He has stopped growing, we learn, at a certain point in his time mentally, right? Yeah. And you have the fence. What does the fence do? It restricts your movement. You have Luster looking after him. The caretaker, what does he do? He restricts Benji's yeah. movement. And then Caddy, and Caddy being referenced to his sister as well, where a Caddy moves things from one place to another, and he can't move from one place to another. He's stuck in this one time of all time. He, he can't change. So let's make sense of this story and make sure we all are aware of what happened. We may not all agree of what times things happened. I will uh, point out that I've read that there's anywhere from 13 to 19 stories, depending on which expert you ask. And each expert also might disagree on what, whether the order that these events happened to. So we're going to give you a timeline, but you know, just be aware that there's going to be some people that disagree and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is just one of those stories that it's going to bring out some meaning to you, and that's what matters. Maybe the fact that we don't all agree on what actually happened is the most brilliant part about this. As you go through this whole book, you're going to learn that there is an objective structural thing that happens. What Mr. Faulkner is doing with Benji is he's giving you a stream of conscious experiential view of what's happened, and that's the truth for you, the reader, right now, for, for Benji right now. But maybe the way that we're going to see once we get to chapter two with Quentin or chapter three with Jason, maybe we have a different meaning and subjectivity of truth becomes part of the story here, which is the brilliance of this. All right, so chapter one, The Sound and the Fury, what the heck just happened, right? <laughs> we actually only have one day that elapses. And only one narrator explains what happens. And only one family, the Compson family, is really explored. So why, with such a simplistic setup, are we so confused after what happened? Let's first start on the day of April 7th, 1928, upon which this title is named, right? And it's not a lie. That's the only day that's actually happened. And I'll, I'll prove it to you as we go through this. I believe you. So April 7th, 1928... Luster Gibson, age 17 or 18, watches Benji Compson, age 33, near a golf course. He's hitting. And what's funny, too, is if you go to the appendix, Faulkner claims that Luster was 14, which is actually not possible based on some other timelines of when apparently Luster was playing at a younger age. So there's just going to be some weirdness when it comes to dates to begin with this. But Benji howls when the golfers yell caddy, a role in golf, and caddy is his sister, but we don't know that yet. Luster gives Benji some flowers and Jimson weed to calm him down. They soon head down to the branch, AK, that's a stream, to look for Luster's missing quarter. Because Luster is looking for a quarter to go to a show. And he needs it for admission. Now at the stream, they play in the water with other kids. The boys depart and talk about seeing each other later. They later encounter Miss Quentin and a man sitting on a swing. Turns out that man 
is a member of one of the performing show that evening. Luster begs to sell him a golf ball in exchange for admission, but doesn't work out. Benji and Luster return home, where Dilsey Gibson has prepared Benji's birthday cake. Benji burns himself on the candles when they're distracted. Jason Thompson returns home, and he has an argument with Miss Quentin. Miss Quentin says that they should send Benji to Jackson, a.k.a. the Insane Asylum, for all his moaning. Miss Quentin takes off after giving Luster a quarter. And that's, that's what happens on this date. There's nothing else that happens in the story besides these events on this day. So why are we so confused is the question. Yeah, because a lot more actually takes place in the chapter than just those events. All right, so now we need to talk about associative thinking. This is what Benji's going through. We're not actually time traveling. We're not actually having flashbacks per se. We're in Benji's mind and he gets distracted with this free associative thinking. An easy way of kind of thinking of that is Benji doesn't understand the construct of time. So associative thinking is a relatively uncontrolled cognitive activity in which the mind wanders without specific direction among elements based on their connections, associations with one another, as occurs during reverie, daydreaming, or free association. So let's say I say a word and that triggers a thought in your mind and you go off and start thinking about something else. That's kind of a way of thinking of associative thinking. This is another way of, a fancy way of saying distracted by a key memory or, or a thought or feeling that I've you said, have right? trouble focusing in on one thought at a time. So that's how all of these transitions happen with Benji. Let's look at the branch, okay? So Luster and Benji are being splashed in the stream by local boys in 1928 while looking for Luster's quarter. We have the sentence, now get in that water and play and see, can you stop that slobbering and moaning? I hushed and I got in the water. And this is a full sentence. I hushed and got in the water and and Roscus came and said to come to supper and Caddy said. In mid-sentence, all of a sudden these italics start and the italics are a good hint that the time period is probably changing, okay? So we switch suddenly in mid-sentence when he, when Benji thinks how he hushed and got in the water and then remembers, and Roscus came and said to come to supper, and Caddy said, I'm, it's not supper time yet. I'm not going. She was wet. We were playing in the branch. So all of a sudden, he jumps back three decades ago and is recalling when he was playing in the branch with his siblings, Caddy specifically. And that's... Hard to pick up on unless you specifically uh, know that those italics have given you a clue that we've shifted in his brain. Right. So the kids go on and we have the line, hush now, she said. I'm not going to run away. So I hushed. Caddy smelled like trees in the rain. And all of a sudden we have the italic shift again and we switch back to 1928. What is the matter with you, Luster said. So immediately hearing the word Luster, you should know Luster wasn't with the kids three decades ago. He wasn't born. (laughs) And we're suddenly back in 1928. Can't you get done with the moaning and play in the branch like folks? So Benji's moaning this whole time that they were playing in the branch. You can think of Benji as moaning, making all this noise, this commotion. And everyone in the present tense is thinking, why is he making this noise? Well, we are in Benji's mind in this story, and Benji is having this associative thinking moment where he's going back to 1898 when he remembers his sister, five, I believe at the time when he was three, splashing in the water. And it was all triggered by that deja vu type experience. So another example that I want to go to, so that's a very simple one, in and out, right? What makes the story really complex is when you go to a 
a different memory from within a memory, right? And that's where people tend to get lost with this story. So in 1928, Luster and Benji are at the golf course, and soon it will be Benji's 33rd birthday. And they're crawling past this fence, and he gets he gets his, I think, shirt or something snagged on a, a nail. Can't you never crawl through here without snagging on that nail? And boom, the thought of being snagged on a nail is what makes him jump to the 1902-1903-ish Christmas time where Caddy uncaught me and we crawled through. And now it's Christmas time and Caddy's uncatching him from the nail and that's what made him jump to this moment. They keep going on through this storyline and Caddy kind of tells Benji, keep your hands out of your pockets, Caddy said, or they'll get froze. You don't want your hands froze on Christmas, do you? Okay, so now hands in the pocket. That makes him jump to two days earlier where we have, it's too cold out there, Versh said. So he has the memory two days previously, and again, some critics will disagree and say that this is a different year, but this is when Caddy's coming home, and Caddy says, oh, did you miss me, you know, with Christmas coming up? Most people think it's a couple days before, some people will argue it's a different year. But the idea is that now we've shifted back to this different time frame, and now they kind of send them out for a different time, and we, we hear that we have the quote, Caddy smelled like trees, and like when she says we were asleep. And that's what makes us jump back to 1928, where in order for Luster to get him to kind of stop moaning and stop making noises, he gives him the the flowers and the gymweed to chew on, and that's what kind of calms him down, because those flowers and that gymweed, you're going to see as a big theme that the trees and flowers kind of remind Benji of Caddy. And that's why those individual little moments, whether it's a sight, a smell, a sound, it makes Benji's mind jump back to these memories. And a lot of times in the present tense, he's moaning and making these noise. And it's not until something kind of triggers him back to the present that we actually return as readers with Benji to the present of 1928. Clear as mud so far? Clear as mud. I think the problem is that many people may not understand this because they don't experience life like Benji does through Pearson sensations. Or if they do experience that sensation, it doesn't take them back as immersed in their own memories as it does him. Like when you have a smell or a sound or a taste, it can remind you, but it doesn't transport you like it does Benji. So what are the major milestones that Benji jumps between? And again, I'm going to point out that critics don't all agree on this. But in 1890, we can all agree Quentin is born, 1892, Caddy is born, 1894, Jason, and the youngest, Benji, named Maury at the time in 1895, is born. Now, those scenes with Caddy climbing up the tree with Moody in the parlor's funeral and the dad saying they need to go to bed early, that's all 1898, and it is 100% definitional for this family, and I'm going to make that argument coming up next. Next, in 1890, we have Caroline renames Maury to Benjamin because they found out that he was cognitively disabled. And I will point you to a video by Jack from The Rambling Raconteur who will go into more detail about this rename and a reference to the Bible that I think is rather interesting. I'll put the link in the description below. But in 1902 and 03, some people argue 08, is Uncle Maury and Mrs. Patterson's letter where basically his uncle is trying to woo this neighbor, Mrs. Patterson, and he's having the kids deliver the love letters to them. <laughs> it's, I love it. It's crafty. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1905, Christmas time, Caddy wears perfume, and we know that's the year because of the age, because the ages are given. Now, later on, Caddy makes out with Charlie at the swing set. 
if you remember them walking up at that swing set. And Benji got upset, and Caddy had to kind of calm him down and bring him back home. And we'll learn more details about that in future chapters. Yeah, I figured that was probably going to be a pivotal moment, and that the other characters are going to have their own interpretation of went down there. Because I don't know oh, if I, yeah. I don't know if I trust uh, old Benji's recollection here. Well, what what makes Benji happy is Caddy. He just wanted to have Caddy around. And I have some quotes about when Charlie approaches and how he increases his moaning later. But yes, there's definitely some different interpretations and impacts later. So 1908, Benji sleeps alone. And we know that's the year because the ages is given. In 1909, Quentin prepares to go to Harvard. And in 1910, April, Caddy gets married. And Benji and TP get drunk on sarsaparilla. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how that's possible, but... (laughs) now 1910 summer benji harasses the burgess girls and uh that's the gate scene when they're talking about the gate being unlocked yeah this one is this one's kind of tough to digest too i could see somebody getting a little bit upset at this one well we're not sure exactly what happens and i think even critics have different interpretations here interestingly enough but later i see that Later, we have Benji is castrated as a result of that scene, and Miss Quentin is uh, Caddy's daughter, and Mr. Compson brings her home to live at the, the Compson house. In 1912, Mr. Compson dies. Later, Roscus dies, and there's a cemetery visit. Now, in some letters from William Faulkner after the fact, uh, we have him claiming that this happened in 1913, the cemetery visit, but that as we know, is completely unreliable with Mr. Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> he's the he's the worst uh, of them all, right? He's the worst narrator of them all. He really is. So in 1928, we have Benji's 33rd birthday and Luster searching for his golf balls. That's the timeline, more or less. People will disagree, maybe on some of these dates, and that's okay. But I think that adds to the fuel of this book being about a subjective form of truth as opposed to an objective form of truth. Dang you, Benji. (laughs) So let's jump into Innocence Lost. And I wasn't really sure how to define innocence versus non-innocence. I I, I couldn't come up with a new, I couldn't come up with the right word. So I just called it spoiled. Okay, so let's go through some examples here. And then I'm going to, and they're going to seem weird at first, but then I'm going to make the argument for why that is. Okay. So innocent caddy is the caddy that splashes with siblings in the stream. And spoiled caddy is the caddy who has soiled her drawers, muddied drawers, if you will, as she climbs up the tree to look at the moody. Okay, does that sound does that sound a little strange? A little doesn't sound like opposites, but they are. No, I get it. Caddy cares for Benji is innocent caddy, but caddy is married or gone is spoiled caddy or non-innocent caddy, whatever the word we want to use here. Yeah, the abandonment. Okay, that makes sense. Innocent Caddy is Caddy Kisses Benji. Spoiled Caddy is Caddy Kisses Charles. We saw that at that scene. Yep. Innocent Caddy is Caddy Smells Like Trees or Woods. Spoiled Caddy is Caddy Smells Like Perfume. Okay. Mm. So I think most readers get that's what happens. And that's part of the brilliance of William Faulkner's narration here is he gave you the what happened. But now the question is, why did it happen that way? And that's where us as readers and Quentin and Jason and the the narrator, a.k.a. Dilsey kind of-ish, later on will bring out some more of these details. But looking at it just from a Benji point of view, I have uh, a little bit of a nuanced view that I want us to look at this with. So I'm going to go into this last section, which is the Compson world, okay? And inside the Compson world, on the left-hand side, we've got Benji, Quentin, and Jason, 
And on the right-hand side is the outside world, okay? So in order for the Compson world to intersect with the outside world, we must have caddy is one of the arguments that I would make for particularly the Benji section, though to a point, the others as well. So as we kind of brought up in our before video, Caddy is going to be instrumental for how each of these main Compson boys interpret the world. Okay? So she's her, she is the eyes for the boys. So if you remember, this story started from a short story with Caddy climbing up into a tree to see her grandmother's funeral as the three Compson boys were down below and look up and see Caddy has muddied drawers. That's the story that this story that this was a short story to start with from Benji's point of view and this blossomed into this novel. So let's think about this, okay? So they were playing in the branch earlier, right? And remember Caddy got wet. That was one of the earlier touch points that we talked about. So she got her drawers muddied, kind of took her skirt off. Mom's going to be mad at you. She's soiled at this point in time from 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 the drawers perspective. She's climbing up in this tree and she's She's the one that's looking into the parlor to see her grandma's funeral, kind of a loss of innocence at this point in time from her perspective. None of the three Compson boys saw this. They all, what'd you see, Caddy? They, they experience it through her. But what is their view as this is happening? So as her dirty Caddy, underwear. <laughs> as Caddy loses her innocence, they're looking up at their sister's muddy drawers Okay, in a sense, and this is pivotal for all three of them for the rest of their lives that they they now almost experience life through Caddy, just like this scene. And I think that you could say that all of their experiences are soiled as well. Exactly, exactly. Now, the stream of consciousness for this book, like I said, the first three chapters, the three Compsons are stream of conscious, and that allows us to have this very subjective view and very Compson-centric view of this world. The, the issues that these three kind of bring up, it's compelling, it's complex, and it's Compson. And then comes like Dilsey in the outside world in, in, in the fourth section, and you kind of realize it's not as big of a deal as a Compson may think it is. So the narration was absolutely necessary in order to make Did it have to be this confusing? Hey, well, <laughs> that's up to you. But I'm going to bring up some interesting dual storytelling techniques that the confusion actually made work that in a traditional narrative, I don't think would have been as interesting. Oh, for sure. No, I think if it had been just very mundane, we wouldn't be taught. This would not be the legacy book that it is. Okay, so for Benji specifically, and to an extent, Quentin and Jason, Compson world, good. Outside world, bad. <laughs> just like this diagram, right? And if you go back through this first chapter, you will see that I, I think this lines up for every single interaction with Benji. Okay. What's interesting is the dual storytelling technique that Faulkner pulls off with this. So I'm going to bring up a couple of examples here. We have Caddy climbing the tree to see Demudi, like we talked about. And at the same time, we have her being married off. So in 1910, when Caddy is marrying off to someone outside of the Compson world, that's a perversion to Benji, right? She's leaving him. She's leaving the Compson world. That's bad, right? Okay, so he's he's lost her. And in the same way, if if what's happening is it's bouncing back and forth with this Demudi scene, where where he's watching her lose her innocence at the exact same time. So at the exact same time he's watching her lose his her innocence, he's also in this wedding 
losing her to the outside world as part of this dual storytelling technique with Benji. We have a quote from Froni. Froni? Not sure how to pronounce it. She says, What are you seeing? Froni whispered. And that's when the transition. So we, we have the italics flip at this point in time. And we have, I saw them. Then I saw Caddy with flowers in her hair and a long veil like shining wind. Caddy, Caddy. So we flipped from being at the tree and the, the the transition was was the visuals. What did you see? The flowers. Right? What were you yeah. yeah, what were you seeing? And then boom, we flipped to Caddy at the exact exact moment of her marriage, right? Going off and perverting to the outside world from Benji's with the flowers, like you said. It's subtle. And it it I think that your first read through you're gonna miss that and just be confused, but it's drastically important to understand Benji and how he is interpreting the world. All right, let's talk about the perfume and gate scene because I think this one was really interesting too. So we have this flipping back and forth between the perfume and when Benji kind of goes out from the gate. We don't like perfume ourselves, Caddy said. She smelled like trees. What were your thoughts on this part? So I feel like this is the the smell is a distinction for a memory. And a lot of times we're always going to have a positive or a negative. And I feel like Benji is associating his childhood with when they were just frolicking and playing. And that sense of that tree pine smell maybe is something that is positive for him. And growing into adulthood is when you start to mask yourself of who you truly aren't. Because when you're a kid, you're free and you just kind of do what you want. And then as an adult, you have responsibilities and you are masking who you are with this smell. And he doesn't like that. And as being, you know, somebody that is not able to grasp higher thinking because of his limitations, he's stuck in that child mentality of just that smell. Nice. I'm going to ask you this, and this is going to be a very big nuance. Who didn't like the perfumes? The boys. No. What? The quote was, we don't like perfume ourselves. This is Caddy associating with Benji as a group. She is the one that is in the Compson world as opposed to the outside world. It is only with her that Benji is complete. And I'm going to say complete in the sense of also, don't we also have those scenes where she would hug Benji? And when they're hugging, they're one. Now compare that to when she saw Charlie. Uh, okay? okay, yeah. We have that quote. It was two now, and then one in the swing. Caddy came fast. So there were t- there was one, and then there were two, right? The idea that when you're hugging or when you're connecting with someone, you are one person. And that's explored in that perfume scene with we don't like the perfume ourselves, right? Okay, yeah, that's subtle. I missed that. The, the we is huge there then. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Well, it's super complex because we have things like Go away, Charlie. He doesn't like you. Charlie went away, and I hushed. I pulled Caddy's dress. Charlie comes back, and he starts crying again. So here's where we see that spherical influence, where Benji starts to reject the anything non-Compson, anything that spoils Caddy or pulls Caddy away from the Compson world, he starts to get frustrated with, right? Yeah. And I... And I guess one of the ways that we're experiencing that as the reader is the moaning, but we don't understand that because all the other people don't understand the moaning. Some critics argue that the perfume was covering up her her innocence. Um, there is going to be more talk about virginity and you know sexuality coming of age in future chapters. I will save more of that conversation for that chapter. But here's my challenge to that from a Benji view, just, just from Benji's view, okay? I agree we'll 
we'll revisit this from from Jason and, and Quentin's view. But from Benji's view, he sees point A. He sees point B. He doesn't understand how point A gets to point B. He doesn't understand the connection. There's no way he would understand himself. I feel like the coming of age, the sexuality, what the perfume meant to Caddy. He just sees perfume. He sees Caddy. Only thing he sees is perversion. If Caddy isn't smell like trees and she isn't a Compson, then he gets upset. So I don't think I I would bring in the sexuality conversation for this scene. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Benji understands sexuality and, and anything of that nature. So let's go back to the gate scene and the perfume scene. Okay, so he's worried about Caddy being lost, right? And it's at this point in time when she's leaving, okay, when she's getting married and going off, we also have this gate scene not too long after where he's, I think, dealing with the loss of his sister and he goes up and scares these girls, right? Yeah, I think it's his way of lashing out for what he feels is abandonment. I think he's trying to, yeah, he lost his other half, right? The two, the one now became two, if you will, from from Benji's point of view. And what's interesting is it may not be clear now, but it's coming, it's there. Do you know why Benji is crying when he's looking in the mirror? I'm guessing that they are, they look similar. Maybe they have a similar hair color or I don't know if it's something deeper than that. Okay, I, I won't spoil it because I feel like this is important for, because it's not totally clear the first time read through. Okay. But for the people who have read it before, people know what happened to Benji, right? What was taken from Benji as a result of him approaching the Burgess girl where we're not exactly sure what happened in a Benji specific world. In the same way that he lost Caddy in his connection to the outside world, with what happened and was taken from Benji is very symbolic here too. That the loss of that is symbolic of that of him losing Caddy, not in a incestuous way, but so much as in that's his that's his view into the funeral, right? His where his view into the world is through the soiled view of his sister in a sense. That makes sense. Now you got me excited too. Do I want to get this in chapter two? Give me a hint. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah you cool. definitely find out in chapter two. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to start reading that tomorrow then. Woohoo! So I think I have a lot more topics I want to cover about time and death, but for sure, I think we're going to hit that pretty hard in the Quentin chapters. So I think let's save some of the Benji commentary for chapter two. We'll cover that. And then I know I want to cover some more of the Old South, New South stuff in with the Jason section, comparing it with Quentin. Yeah. But let's wrap this up with, with one more idea, okay? Okay. Does sensational reporting, what Benji's stream of conscious is, this is what I felt, this is what I sensed, this is what I saw. In some views, right, like like if a, if a cop's interviewing you for a crime, just tell me what happened. Just give me the facts, ma'am, right? Like, isn't that <laughs> a quote from some, from some dragnet show or something like that? Yeah, I think so. Does sensational reporting represent the truth? From a certain point of view, I think it does. To Benji, it does. And I think that's what Benji's chapter is the argument for. Because we're going to find that there's a different version of truth for Quentin and a different version of truth for Jason. And I think that's what, ex- what the story is really exploring at the heart is just this stream of consciousness is such an interesting way to make you the character, right? Because the actions aren't what mattered in a stream of consciousness, the, the results aren't what mattered. It's the relationship between those of how I interpret those, my how my heart feels about them. 
that's why Benji's section is really fascinating beyond just the fun what time frame am I in now? Like it's kind of like an adventure to try and figure out what you're doing here. Some people don't like that. And hopefully this talk kind of brought that out for you. But that is what Mr. Faulkner, I think, was going for with this chapter. And I think he did a really interesting job. I hated it the first time I read this section. I'm with you. If you read this one time, I was you. If you hated it, that was me. Only through multiple readings that I really unlock what the subjective truth was or why I was supposed to be looking at it. The first time reading through it, it I just... It's just a weird place in this novel, and, and I get it. I get it. You got to push past it. I promise you each chapter after this gets easier to read. Yeah, I was I was trying to put my thoughts together on this, and I was talking to my wife a little bit about it. I guess Benji's truth is truth to him, and truth is in the eye of the beholder. And if you think of something simpler like colors, we don't all see colors the same, but we can all agree that that is green or that is red, and that is a sensation. And how do you know my truth is the same as your truth? Are you lying to me about that just so we can agree upon it? Or what about taste? You know, oh, this tastes good. This tastes bad. So it, it, it really is what you think. And this is what Benji thinks. Well, even within that, that sphere of truth, even within one person, uh, I, I've dealt with kids that have had autism and having too much stimulation for them can, can kind of overload them depending on the individual. And even if you have a truth for what those colors are, when you put too many of those colors together, it really changes their experience and interpretation of those colors as well. And your truth can change itself too. Yeah, over time, right? Yeah. I um, When I was little, I was told we had, we had these crayons and we had to color them what color they were. So you had to color the blue, blue, red, red, green, green. And you took it home and you studied it. This was preschool. I, I mixed my pink and my purple and they didn't tell me that. So I went home and memorized that pink was purple and purple was pink because I had flipped them and no one told me that and I, I practiced it. It took me probably until high school to reflip my brain to, you know, I'd tell someone, hey, look at that girl in the pink over there. I'll say a girl in pink because she was wearing purple and I had them flipped for years. It t- took me a while to rewire my brain. So, th- so the truth is just such an interesting thing mm. and the way Faulkner explores it within the mind, it's really brilliant. It is. I, I have to give it to him. Yeah, and it's an interesting way to start the book as well, to start it off with such a uh, a struggle and to start it off with such a compelling character such as Benji. I've never read anything like this before as if it was written by, you know, somebody that was of Benji's statu- status. Uh, that That's kind of cool. I think that that is something that's just literary genius. And you, you can't replicate something like that. All right, guys, stay tuned for Quentin. We're going to get that out. Uh, make sure you've checked out our before video. I, I Hopefully we'll push that out soon, if not already, by the time this video comes out. Uh, we're going to cover some more about time, uh, some more about the feelings that Quentin has. Like, stay tuned. You're going to read it, and you're going to be like, okay, I got this. Come back. I promise. <laughs> you're like, oh, I didn't get it. Una, Una, you're right. I didn't get it. <laughs> Quentin's an interesting character. We're going to talk about him. So, all right, guys, thank you so much for checking out our video today. Hopefully you had some fun with this. Hopefully, if you were struggling, hopefully we were able to bring some more joy to this. This is really is an interesting book when you put more into it. I wish I had done more the first read through, but but I got there finally after these four, four rounds with me and Mr. Benjo. So if you are down for literature discussions like we've had today, please hit that subscribe button to join us on the journey. Una out. Peace.